Welcome to the Financial Leverage Point, hosted by John Iannucci, founder and CEO of ILG Private Wealth. In this podcast, we dive deep into the world of financially successful families. We offer candid advice on how to navigate the maze of strategies and products designed to protect, grow, and transition your wealth to your family, friends, and the causes you care deeply about. Join John and his guest experts as they unveil the crucial elements of comprehensive tax, estate, business succession, and financial planning. Strategies designed to give you sleep through the night confidence while maintaining a steady flow of wealth for you and your heirs. Protect. That word will take on special importance when you hear the story of your host, Johnny Anucci. I'm Patrice Sakora. And John offers a unique approach to financial planning with a background that is unusual and rich in life experience. Well, John, welcome. Good to have you here. Very nice to be here. And now you are a lawyer and a financial advisor. You're the founder and CEO of ILG Private Wealth. Tell us a little bit about your background. Where'd you grow up? Yeah, family members. Were, were any of your family members lawyers or financial advisors? Well, that, that's a great question. I, I grew up in a, uh, a lower income working class neighborhood just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And unlike most of my colleagues that I got to know once I became a lawyer, no, not, neither of my parents were lawyers or CPAs. In fact, both sets of my grandparents were immigrants. My father's grandparents had immigrated from um, Southern Italy and my mother's family immigrated from Southern Ireland. Hmm. And so, you know, I, I was that prototypical immigrant second generation family where my father's parents actually lived with us when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And while my mother was very proud of the fact that she graduated from high school, she, once she married my dad, was a stay-at-home mom and raised the kids, me and my sister. And my dad had kind of a unique experience in that his parents never learned to speak English. They lived in the United States for quite some time, died in their 80s. My grandmother in particular never spoke English. Right. And so, you know, at some point around 10th grade, my father actually quit high school to support, financially support his parents who lived with us until they passed. And so I'm a little bit odd in that regard. I, I think that many of my colleagues had parents who were well-educated, were either CPAs or lawyers or PhDs, university professors and so on. But no, I really came from a, a working class neighborhood just right outside Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What core beliefs do you think your family instilled in you? Well, you know, that, that's something that, that took me quite a while to figure out. I think innately, I knew what it was that I was supposed to do, but it took me a while to really, through introspection, to learn what it was those core beliefs were. By way of example, my, my mother's parents died relatively young. Uh, my mother, I think, was 12 years old when her mother passed. And then shortly after that, uh, her husband, her father died oh and he had, he had just remarried after that for a very short period of time. And believe it or not, that stepmother who didn't know my mother and her two brothers actually volunteered to support and raise my mother and her brothers. Right. She went to work and supported the family. She did what, you know, is commonly referred to as the right thing. She stuck by her new family and I realized that both, both of my parents instilled in me the importance of doing the right thing, first and foremost, and always protecting friends and family. You know, protection of friends and family 
was paramount for us. The reason my father actually quit school in 11th grade was my grandmother, I would say, informally adopted a child. You know, her best friend died at childbirth. And back then, they would actually keep a child at the hospital when they didn't have family. Right. And finally, after about 16 months, my grandmother, who spoke no English, went to the hospital and with my father demanded that they release this infant, this little girl to my grandmother's, you know, to be raised by my grandmother. And my father, knowing at that time that his family was in no condition financially to support yet another child, my father was the youngest of four children. He quit school to take care of his new extended family. And again, that core concept, that core theme of protecting the people you love, family and friends, and always doing the right thing consistently while, while he was raising me to be a man and what he thought you know, were the, the core ideals for being a man, protection of family and friends and doing the right thing were two core concepts that he, he instilled deeply in me. Now I'm going to jump in. I want you to tell the story that you mm -hmm. told me about mm -hmm. your father and protecting mm -hmm. your mother and your sister. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's kind of an unusual situation. My dad, because he wasn't well-educated, he worked in a, a car factory and in that automobile factory, he was required at times to work swing shifts. And uh, I was about 12 years old at the time. And our neighborhood had experienced a rash of violent break-ins and it became very you know, concerning to my dad that, that he had to work all night. And my sister was five years younger than me. We lived in a relatively tough neighborhood. And my dad, one, da one day when I was 12, asked me to come to his bedroom and he taught me how to, how to load a revolver. Mm -hmm. And, and he, he sat down and, and kind of scared me with a specific set of a set of instructions on what I should do should someone attempt to break into the home in the middle of the night when he wasn't there, when he was working. And he said to me, John, nobody comes up these steps to the second floor, but me, nobody, doesn't matter who they are. And invariably, as it would happen, several months later, you know, I was woken in the middle of the night by my mother who was crying and a loud banging on our front door. And I panicked, I jumped up and fortunately did exactly as my dad you know, directed. I, I picked my little sister up, moved her into my mother's bedroom, asked my mother to go into the bedroom and lock the door from the inside and asked her to call the police. Mm -hmm. And I sat at the top of the steps with a loaded 38 revolver. And unfortunately, the phone in my parents' room wasn't working. And oh, no. so we made the decision to go down the steps and I went down the steps first with a gun in my hand and the front door, I put my left hand on, it was actually bowing from somebody outside, putting their shoulder into the door and trying to push the door in. And I have to admit at 12 years old, I actually thought about shooting through the front door to prevent him from getting in the home. But fortunately neighbors had heard the ruckus and called the police even before my mother did. And the interesting part of the story was he was an enormous man. He weighed well over 300 pounds and he was drunk that night and he thought he was at his girlfriend's home and he was furious that he was locked out. And, you know, so when the police arrived and they knocked on the door to check on us, I wouldn't let them in <laughs> because I, I literally took that role, those directions, that role as a protector extremely seriously. 
And I would not let them in until my father got home from work. So they had to call him at the factory and tell him there was an emergency. And he drove 25 minutes while the police were standing around (laughs) and didn't let anybody in the home until he actually arrived home. That's a heck of a story. Um, I I don't, it's a heck of a story. That's all I'm going to say. It it gives me (laughs) chills. It gives me absolute chills. Right. Now you say your dad didn't graduate high school. Your mother did. You were yes. not in college. You were going I for did. your EE, right? Right. I, I was actually a, a black sheep in the family. <laughs> I was the first one to actually go to college, not only in my immediate family, but in my extended family. And to my knowledge, I may be the only one that actually graduated from college. And, you know, to add insult to injury, I couldn't stop with just a bachelor's degree as an electrical <laughs> engineer. You know, I had to be an overachiever and and actually go to law school and and even subsequent to that onto uh, the University of Florida to earn an advanced degree in tax law. So my, my parents did instill in me the value of education. Even though they weren't educated, they realized that, in my father's words, you know, education was something that they couldn't take away from you. And he, he really kind of drilled into me how important it was to be educated. The funny thing was, after I graduated with an electrical engineering degree and told my father I, I was going to go on to law school, he asked me if I was going to be a permanent student. And at some point actually said, <laughs> where do you plan to live when you go on to law school? <laughs> Very practical individual. He thought that I, I had gone far enough. I had a, you know, I had a, a college degree, a four-year college degree. And that at that point, it was time to get a job and start supporting me and maybe even provide a little support to his family as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So where did you first start practicing law? Well, after the University of Florida, where I got my LLM in taxation, I was recruited by a very large law firm that had multi-state offices, offices throughout the United States. And their main tax office, the state planning office, one of their main offices was in Tampa, Florida. So I started practicing with this law firm. And, you know, the really unique thing about practicing with that kind of law firm, and I have to hand it to the partners who really kind of mentored me at that law firm, was immediately right out of law school. I had the opportunity to work with some of the most affluent, successful families in the United States. So here I am, my first job as a lawyer, having graduated past the bar. And suddenly, you know, I was being given the opportunity to work on these projects for families that were just names that you would recognize candidly, Mm -hmm. uh, working on their estate plans, their business succession plans, their business growth plans. And uh, it was an incredible experience. And uh, I think it's, it was due to the insight of the partners that mentored me, that they allowed me, fostered me, kind of corrected me along the way, but really helped me develop the ability to practice and to focus on the, the needs of affluent, successful families in the United States. Why'd you leave? Well, at some point, it, it's again, back to my family. My mother developed very significant heart disease. Her twin brother had died at the age of 42, and I was living in Tampa. My mom and my dad were living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and my mother was scheduled to go in for emergency surgery, bypass surgery. She's going to have five arteries bypassed in her first go-round, and she called me and asked me if I would consider coming home, and you know, I was kind of taking on that role as my dad was aging, as the, the patriarch of the family, if you will, and... I realized that while I really valued this unique opportunity to practice in Tampa, there were just more important things to me. I had to support and protect my family. And so 
we moved back to Pittsburgh and I, I was fortunate again to, to work with a very, very experienced law firm that quickly allowed me to co-manage the estate planning, business planning, and uh, business succession planning mm -hmm. um, teams in the law firm. And so once again, I never skipped a beat. I really had that continuing opportunity in Pittsburgh to continue working with very successful families throughout the United States. So then you moved out on your own though? I did. You know, there, there comes a time, I think, when you're a practicing lawyer and you develop enough of your own business that you realize there's some advantage to going out on your own or to forming a new practice with a group of like-minded partners. And that's exactly what we did. Me and several other partners of that firm, several other partners from different law firms came together to form a, a new law firm. Mm -hmm. And I was the tax attorney. I was the estate planning, business succession planning lawyer um, in that partnership. And so we formed a new partnership. I was lucky in that I had developed my own client base and some of those very core concepts, I think, that my family instilled in me were exactly responsible, precisely responsible for how I was able to develop my own client base and take them with as I helped co-form, co-found that new law firm. All right. Now you've got the law firm, you're doing well, you're a tax attorney. I, I'm assuming you liked what you do or did. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Why then move over to financial services? Again, it's, a, it's an interesting story in that I had become kind of the go-to confidant for my clients at that law firm. And so it really didn't matter what issue they were facing at that time, whether it was a legal issue that was directly related to what I did as a lawyer, you know, a tax issue or an estate planning issue, or they had a child that suddenly had a DUI. It didn't mm -hmm. matter. I was the go-to confidant. I was the fixer for my clients. They would call me with anything that was, you know, causing them to be awake at night. And as a result of that relationship and that confidential relationship with my clients, one client actually came to me and asked me to review a relatively novel, advanced life insurance strategy and asked if I'd review it and provide some comment. And I had candidly never heard of the strategy before. And so I did. I looked at it and I didn't like it at all. And I told him I didn't like it. And I worked with the financial advisors, his financial advisors, the insurance companies, um, the lenders, there were banks involved in this transaction. And I completely restructured that solution for him. And it really wasn't something that, you know, I was experienced in from the beginning. It, I, I, it was something I kind of studied because he asked me to. I developed an opinion and, and restructured that, that plan. And literally immediately after we closed on that business, on that particular plan, I received a call from a, a very large US-based insurance company and asked if I would accept referrals. And I said I would. And I thought they were, of course, talking about referrals to me as a lawyer. And I said, I, I'm licensed to practice law in Pennsylvania and Florida. And I, I think they kind of laughed at my response because I didn't realize that what they were asking me was you know, will you accept referrals to help us develop these financial plans, these retirement plans, these estate plans as a licensed insurance agent, as a licensed securities representative? And so I thought about it for a little while. And I started by taking the life insurance exam in Pennsylvania. 
And once I was licensed, I will tell you that the floodgates opened up of business wow. around the United States. And unlike when I was practicing law, where I was restricted to practicing in Pennsylvania and Florida as a licensed life insurance agent, as long as you got licensed in each of the states where you had a client, you could do life insurance work in those states. And I literally was barraged with opportunities to develop these advanced estate planning and retirement planning compensation related deferred compensation related plans insurance companies and insurance agents were referring these very complex opportunities to me because one i had some background now as an insurance agent but more importantly i had the ability to speak at a particular level with all of the other professionals at the mm -hmm. table for that client when you have affluent clients Successful clients always have kind of a board of advisors. They have their lawyer, they have their CPA, they have a financial advisor. And so I was able to develop strategies and speak at a particular level with those other advisors, lawyers and CPAs and so on. And then I could turn around and speak to the client at a particular level and help them understand what it was we were doing without all the technical jargon that's typically you know, employed and utilized whenever you're doing these, these complex strategies. And it was because of that, working with these affluent families on these complex insurance strategies that these families started to say to me, we love what you're doing. We love how you protect us. We love that you're our go-to fixer. Will you start managing our investments? Can you manage our investments? And at the time, I didn't want to do that. I knew that if I was affiliated or licensed with a broker dealer, I'd have certain restrictions that I thought were inappropriate in order to maintain that fiduciary relationship with the client. And then I learned that I could, in fact, create an independent RIA and still have the independence that I needed to be a full-time fiduciary to my clients. But it was really because of that one case that a client who trusted me with everything they did and asked me to review that case then I, I got involved in financial services. Then tell me about how the same core beliefs that helped you become a successful lawyer helped you shape your wealth management business. It sounds like they were the basis for this. You keep talking about protecting. Mm -hmm. You're right. It was. You know, those, those core beliefs of one, constantly being a fiduciary to my clients. Number two, at, at all costs, first and foremost, protecting my clients, sometimes protecting them from themselves, but <laughs> protecting my clients and protecting my clients' accumulated wealth. And then finally having a relentless drive to find solutions to my clients' problems. You know, as a lawyer, I realized that as a business lawyer, we jokingly referred to lawyers as two types of business lawyers. You were either a deal breaker where you were always focused on the problems and all you could do was highlight more and more problems. And then as there were lawyers who we referred to as deal makers, they identified the problems. They knew the problems inside and out, but they focused on finding a solution to make sure that the client got the deal that they wanted done. And so being a fiduciary, protecting my client at all costs, first and foremost, and then finally having that relentless drive to focus on and find solutions to my clients' problems caused me to become very, very popular with clients in the early days and really helped me develop and grow a thriving financial services practice. Was it an easy transition? You know, Patricia, it wasn't. And the reason it wasn't was I, I while practicing law, I knew that 
the lawyer on the other side of a business transaction was doing what they could to promote their client's best interests. Um, but at the same time, there was a line they wouldn't cross. They wouldn't do anything that was fraudulent. They wouldn't make any claims they couldn't back up. You know, there was give and take in the negotiation process. But I think that when you live and work in a community of lawyers within a city, if your rep rep reputation is one where you, you, you would do and, and say the inappropriate things, pretty mm -hmm. quickly lawyers know that and they know how to treat you whenever you're involved in a case. And so there was a certain give and take in the practice of law that I knew and understood. And I thought, incorrectly thought, that when I went into financial services, that I would have that same experience. And what I relatively quickly learned is that is absolutely not the case. I quickly learned that financial services as an industry today is a broken industry. And not only did I have to protect my clients from things like too much risk in their investments, but I also had to protect my client from what I would refer to as the product pushers that are out there. Mm -hmm. You know, the insurance companies or the broker dealers that create a particular product that they claim is designed to solve all of the world's ills. Buy this and you don't need anything else. Put all of your money into this solution or this product. And I, I really didn't realize that clients were getting what I think, candidly, is intentionally deceiving information from all sides. And so I realized, oh, my gosh, I really have to step up my game now to protect my clients. I have to do a thorough analysis of everything that's out there or available for a particular client's you know, comfort level and risk tolerance and determine what makes sense and what doesn't. Because candidly, nobody was, in my opinion, telling me the truth. They were all trying to sell something. And I realized that my focus had to be on asset protection planning as a core concept, as part of a core concept of our financial planning you know, way of doing business. How did clients react or how do they react when you tell them, you know, this is not good for you? You may like it, but it's not good for you. And this is why. Well, you know, in the beginning, I will admit that there was a certain level of distrust and discomfort with me having that kind of conversation. And so um, there was some pushback initially. And what I've learned to do along the way is rather than being so so bold and so blunt at times about this is horrible, this doesn't work, you, mm -hmm. you don't want this, you may think you want this, it looks appealing it's more a process of educating clients now on both the advantages and the disadvantages of a particular product or strategy. You know, there's, I, I, I like to say there's no such thing as a horrible product, but there's no such thing as a perfect product or perfect strategy either. Anything you do, any product you utilize, any strategy you employ, just like medication that you get has an interaction with the other medication that you, that you're taking at the time. And so I've learned that, the best way to help a client make a decision is to educate them about both the benefits and the detriments to particular products or strategies, and then gradually let them come to a decision. And through that educational process, you know, where they're still in charge, many affluent families still want to be in charge. They want to be educated. They want great advice, but at the end of the day, they want to make the decision. And so now what I've learned, instead of being so, so brunt, blunt about what works and what doesn't, what they should employ and what they shouldn't. I educate them about all of the different pluses and minuses of different strategies and help them come to a decision.
All right. Kind of like the velvet glove. Hmm? Exactly. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> right. Well, this has been great, John. Thanks so much for sharing. And this is only episode one of your podcast right. now. Mm -hmm. What are you going to talk about in the next episode? Well, interestingly enough, anytime I meet somebody new and they ask me what I do and I talk about the fact that I'm I'm in financial services, you know, the the, the next word out of their mouth is I I got a guy. Yeah. You right. know, they, they <laughs> immediately they, they want to tell me I I'm not soliciting anybody, but immediately they they want to tell me they've got a guy. Right. And so I've got a guy in Ohio. I've got a guy in Pennsylvania. I've got a guy I'm well taken care of. So I think what we're going to do in the next podcast is I'm going to walk our audience through a series of questions that they should ask their current financial advisor, their current broker. And I think these are going to be very interesting, important questions for clients to ask their advisors. And I think if they do that, if they take that step, they're going to quickly realize that if certain things like advanced, advanced tax management planning, if that's important to their overall financial and estate plan, they're going to quickly realize they're not getting that from their current advisor. In fact, it's illegal for their current advisor in many situations, in many occurrences, circumstances to actually provide that level of advice. And so in our next podcast, I'm going to reveal a set of about 10 questions that I think anybody listening should should speak to their advisor about. And when they realize they're not getting the answers or what they get is an answer, something like, I'll get back to you on that, or I'll have to call the check <laughs> about that. They're going to realize they're not getting the service they're paying for, and they're certainly not getting the service they need given the level of su success they've earned. All right. John, how can listeners reach you? Well, I think the easiest way to get in touch with us is we have a very simple website address. We can help you.com. If they go to we can help you.com on the upper right hand side, you'll see a, a button there, a link to schedule. And they can schedule to do a telephone call with me. They can schedule to do an in person conference with me. But right there, um, they can look at our calendar. They can reach out to my executive assistant and um, schedule a time to speak to me or meet with me at their convenience. Fantastic. Thank you, John. And listener, follow this podcast. Learn how you might protect your wealth and your family and share with those you care about. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to the Financial Leverage Point. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. To contact John, check out the show notes where you'll find his contact information and useful resources from today's episode. Once again, thank you for listening. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of John Iannucci. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.